Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'd like to talk tonight about self-image in practice. perhaps relate it to some of the things that you're going through on this second day of sitting. Even though we're involved on spiritual journey as students, teachers, teachers as students, and we might have some idea that we're above maintaining images, knowing that there's no self to begin with and that image is just a projection that nasty pattern of presenting ourselves or maintaining some kind of stance comes up probably more than just every now and then uh, when you're practicing certainly has in my practice I remember one retreat after I had looked at this pattern so many times and gotten over the initial horror of it some sometime later on another uh, a later three month retreat I was doing the slow walking meditation and I was starting to see all of these projections and uh, presentations that that I had I'd be doing the slow walking, lifting, moving, and I'd be all by myself and quite, uh, quite into it. And then somebody would come by, you know, in my field of vision or my, my territory, and there would be a whole different shift to the quality of the walking. I noticed it was very jarring. I started using the, the note, looking good. Okay, that became my predominant note for some time. Lifting, moving, looking good, looking good. (laughs) We have so much invested in what we want to either project to others or hope to maintain in our our own being or hope to hide, cover up. And all that investment prevents our clear seeing of who we actually are and what's really going on in here. Often, the projections and the images that we want to fit into motivate our actions so that we're not in a natural rhythm or harmony with ourselves. This is another uh, example. A number of years ago, this is about uh, 12 years or so ago, I was undergoing for a period of time, was actually for about a year, experimenting with celibacy was part of a a group that I was involved in. And the first few months, it was really uh, an eye-opener when I'd see myself going through all sorts of uh, primping and preening and and different contortions uh, before I would leave the house that no longer had any kind of possible payoff. I could see there were just such strong habits of, of my mind that 
I was doing it for some time before I realized, oh, what am I, what am I trying to do here? And, I, and when I looked closely, it was maybe someone would notice me as I'm walking down the street and look back twice. You know. Oh, well, then I, I'm worth something. You know. Maybe that would lead to something else. Who knows? But even, even a second look seemed like a pretty neat stroke to me at the time. And that was all extra. Now, here, I'd never see this person again and somehow they would validate my existence. And so I would catch myself in all sorts of extra behavior that had no relevance to what I was really all about. And the same is true here when we practice. As you practice, what kind of an image do you have of what you'd like to look, be, look like or aspire to or cover up. Oh, I'm the I'm the restless one here. Or I'm the space case. I hope nobody finds out. What are you trying to get rid of or maintain? The ironic aspect of these images, especially when they apply to practice, is that often the things that we that we hope to look like have nothing to do with genuinely uh, powerful, strong practice. Because there's many ideas that we have that are just ideas that are, can at sometimes be the reverse of a strong practice. Sometimes people have an idea that they should be. Um, unemotional and balanced and serene and they can be walking through their day completely um, unconnected disconnected to what's going on inside other times people can have an idea that practice should be very emotional so they're really getting a lot out of this retreat so there's an effort to to churn things up, especially when you're in a group with someone who's going through a great catharsis. You know, gee, nothing's much happening with me. I, I want to get something out of this. Or perhaps the mind says, when I'm really doing it well, there'll be no thought. Right. Oh, there's still plenty of thought. Forget it. Maybe one day I'll get to the place where there's no thought and then I'll know I'm a good yogi. Thinking is one of the things that happens in our lives continually. Just like seeing and like hearing and smelling and tasting and touching. Do you open your eyes and say, gee, maybe one day I won't see and then I'll know that I'm really worth something. It's just another process that we go through. And so to deny it or to try to beat it down is quite misguided. In fact, you can be quite clear, quite focused and concentrated and notice the little workings, subtleties of mind operating on many different layers of thought. But the thoughts are still there for the most part. Maybe the image comes that if I'm doing it well, I'm slow. I'm really a snail. People are so slow around here. It's killing me, but I'll, 
I'll slow down. You can go slowly and be in another galaxy if you haven't noticed it for yourself. Because the mind keeps on slipping off what's here. When actually, if you're going at a more natural pace, you can be connected to the activity. Or peace. Oh, there'll be great peace. And there you are, a storm inside. Or fear. Or confusion. Or grief. Or sadness. All of those things are a part of who we are. To deny them is to deny ourselves, our humanness. There's a saying in the Third Zen Patriarch, to assert the emptiness of things is to deny their reality. And so, when you have a few hindrances crop up, the question is, how can you work with them without that sense of defeat or discouragement so that they become the richness of practice. Most people here have heard quite a few hindrance talks and you probably know them well. But I'll go over them briefly to refresh your memories in case you haven't been visited by by them recently. the quality of desire in the mind, wanting something, wanting something different or something out of what's happening in this moment, wanting the end of the sitting, wanting a peaceful meditation, wanting to get to know someone else on the retreat, wanting to have your life finally settle down to um, equanimity and, and make some sense. It's very painful, that wanting, that movement outside of ourselves that says this moment isn't enough. Second hindrance of aversion, not wanting. Here you are in this moment, oh no, anything but this this knee pain, this um, mental pain, the confusion, tofu, whatever it happens to be. Not that. And again, that contraction away from what's going on keeps us from seeing what's really here. Aversion, sleepiness, Dullness of mind, which on the first few days is particularly apparent, most people anyway. When I sit a retreat, I give myself at least three days to just go through as much zoning out as I will. I'm on the cushion, but I know that that's part of the settling in process. Slowing down and connecting with that energy source in me that um, that I usually don't tap into. Sleepiness, dullness of mind, restlessness, feeling like you're just going to explode. Again, that's a very common experience the first few days of a retreat because we're running around, busy, 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 and then you come here 
and you sit down. Only it's still shaking around inside. It takes a little while to settle. But it's very frustrating. Gee, everyone is so still. Boy, this room is really, really still. This is an advanced retreat. You know. If they only knew what was going on inside, you know, they'd probably ask me to leave politely. Restlessness, agitation, worrying in that general category, worrying or regretting, playing things over in the past and the future that keeps on stirring our energies up. And then the last classical hindrance, doubt, the doubting mind. I can't do this, or this is crazy. Why didn't I get it the last time that I did a retreat? And it's very, very painful and uh, debilitating to have that kind of doubt. Have you had it in the last day or two? Am I up to this task? Or can I get through this particular pain in my body that's happening right now? Something that I take comfort in when I reflect on the hindrances is that they've been written about for thousands of years. That they are a natural part of the human mind. It's not my unique situation. And so when I touch them, I'm touching my humanness, my commonality with all of the other people who've ever lived who have a mind and have a body. How do we deal with them? How have you been dealing with them the last last day or two? Is there a place that wants to get rid of them? If they're only out of the way, then my retreat will just be clear sailing. It doesn't work when you try to get rid of them, does it? It can't. Because as you're trying to get rid of something, there's just more aversion, more contraction, more confusion, and not really seeing what's going on, which is that particular experience of desire or aversion or doubt or whatever it is. And it also works counter to the development of our understanding because until we're willing to not only deal with them or tolerate them, but embrace them with compassion, we're cutting off ourselves, one part of ourselves from another part, and we're also cutting off ourselves from other people around who get stuck in their confusions. And so as a reminder, the general prescription to work with these hindrances is the practice, is the mindfulness. But the awareness that not only sees with detachment, but sees with compassion. Because unless there's that element of appreciation of kindness, of a basic warmth to your own process, there's some subtle aversion or coldness that makes it very hard to embrace the moment as it is. 
The concept of renunciation has, uh, is a very familiar one to people who, uh, who do the, this kind of Dharma practice. Renunciation, letting go, simple, keep it simple. But if you try to let go or renounce your hindrances before they're ready to go, you're just holding on to some extra baggage. There's a, a phrase that Joseph uses called energy conservation when he talks about renunciation. And by that it means not expending extra energy, needless energy, trying to make something happen or trying to acquire something that you don't have. But there's a certain kind of uh, presence and connectedness when we can be with what's really here. Not have to figure out how, do I, can, how I can get rid of it. <clears throat> our reactions and our judgments about what's happening are the very things that create more confusion. And so when we can let go of the extra baggage of those judgments, of that image that we're trying to live up to, it's a great release and relief. Because through that letting go, we become just who we are. There's a a beautiful uh, passage on letting go from Ajahn Chah. He says, Do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect any praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, a lot of peace. What we can let go of is our reactions on top of what's actually happening. But this whole idea of image, it's very easy to get caught in one particular event or experience or pattern that we see and generalize from that to the self-concept of who we are. So, for instance, if some fear comes up from time to time, if you're having difficulty with it, it takes over your whole experience. And so, you're doing this battle, this constant dance with the fear. And so, that becomes who you are. You magnify the experience by your unwillingness or difficulty in encountering it. Or you have a pain in your body. It might be a, a strong pain. It might even be just a, a mild pain, just an, an annoying pain. You get those, you know, just get this annoying pain. Gee, everything is going so well. Why do I have this darn little pain that's bugging me? Or with the strong ones, oh my goodness. I'm getting my, my past karma from 20 lifetimes rolled into one in this particular retreat, and this is my... This is my retreat. This is what it's going to be about. And then you get into this whole 
this whole drama about that. Or think because you're having a difficult time on one day that you're just a lousy yogi. It's amazing that trick of the mind to zero in on one aspect of who we are and forget the whole the rest of the whole show. A number of years ago, I was, I was thinking about an experience that I had when I was in my early 20s. I was about 20, uh, 22. And I would go to um, go traveling to Europe each, each summer. I was a school teacher. And when the summer came, I just beeline for my vacation traveling around Europe and I would go by myself as my my um, challenge to grow and find out who I who I was I remember going to um, to Sweden and I was kind of shy I, I'm basically a shy person in those days very shy and I would go to um, to the discos in Sweden where they have these now discos were the rage at the time and they had just beautiful Swedish young women lined up I thought wow this is this is great you know, and I'd ask one to dance you know, no no it's like my baby I, I'm hearing this I'm saying no no um, and then I ask another to dance no sorry then another three, four, five times, you know, and, and I'd start to get really discouraged. And I think, God, I must be either hopeless or ugly or worthless or whatever. This happened a few nights in a row. I think they just went to the discos to be able to tell people no. And I went back. I remember one one night I went back to my uh, to my hotel, <coughs> kind of dejected. <coughs> Opened up Be Here Now, which was my Bible in those days, and read just what I needed to read, of course. And that kind of inspired me and gave me a whole bigger perspective on, on what's going on. And I started to think as I, as I shifted my, um, my dejection uh, into a bigger picture, of all the people at home that, that I knew, that loved me, that knew me pretty well, enjoyed being around me and I would think about them and here were maybe 10 or 15 people as I was going down my people in my life on one side of the the scale so to speak and then on the other side was this was one young woman who I'd never met before in my life who I asked to dance who might have had a either sore feet or a boyfriend or I don't know what saying Sorry, I can't dance. Uh, I don't want to dance. And that somehow had more validity than everything in, that I knew about myself. That two-second encounter. And that's often what we do in our reality. It's all got to be perfect. And if there's one little you know, pimple in our lives, the blemish is what we notice. When we can let go of our image of trying to be someone or striving in our practice, in our lives, things get so much easier. Then we can get out of the way and just become ourselves. And we don't have to impress. The paradox about, about all of this, when, you, when, you, when I reflect on impressing, 
is thinking about the people who are close with you, your friends who know you well. Those people you don't have to go around trying to show off to. They already know all the garbage, you know, so what are you going to do? And the odd thing is that they generally appreciate and like us. But when it's somebody new, then what we are isn't quite enough. We have to be maybe just a little bit more. Then we'll, then we'll score. Then we'll count. And think of how you are around someone who's trying to be just a little bit more than who they are. Do you get impressed and say, gee, they're a little bit more than who they are? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. But when we're around somebody who's, who's just genuinely themselves, it allows for us to be ourselves, and it's very freeing. You know that feeling when you do get connected. <clears throat> so being natural, it's a wonderful practice. One thing to, to do is try to be your own worst fear you know, of a klutzy yogi you know, or a, a sleepy yogi. What happens then? And you really see, oh yeah, I've got that in there too. Big deal. See if you can wear it as a cloak. Hey, this is... Sleepy yogi incarnate. And then it's not a problem because you're not trying to put it away. And you see, once you're in touch with it, big deal. Okay, so there's spacey yogi. It happens when when somebody's in the teaching uh, teaching mode as well. If I think about it, what could I possibly say to you, you know, that you probably haven't touched in yourself in practice? Be mindful. Don't judge. That's it. And when I think about it, the, the awesome um, position for me, if I reflect on it, of sharing the Dharma. Now, who am I to share? I remember once uh, on a retreat going to an interview just after looking at all the garbage in my mind and saying uh, I am unqualified to say a word to anyone about practice, about Dharma practice. I said it, actually there were tears coming out of my eyes as I said it. I just can't, there's there's no point in this. I see all the garbage inside. And Joseph, who I was sharing this with said oh I've had that thought too I said you have? he said yeah every time I sit every time I do a retreat and actually it's a very healthy thought to some extent to keep us honest when we think that we're somebody special to see oh yeah I'm, I'm just me and from that place there's uh, the possibility of communication of accessibility, of just awakening our being through being with each other. And people who really inspire me and impress me are the ones that are genuinely themselves, that aren't set apart from, uh, from the people they're speaking to, being something special. So as we're sitting here, 
what can we do with all this garbage that we see? With all the hindrances, with the sleepiness and the pain and the, the wandering mind. As I said, compassionate awareness. That's the seems to be the best prescription. In these first few days of a retreat, the the compassion part I feel really needs to be stressed. Because there's such a high intention that people have for for making it a valuable experience. And going in there whole hog and putting out full effort that some people have, that many people have, and I, and I get a sense of it from, uh, from this particular group, that there's a, a very sincere commitment that people have for being here. And in that sincere wanting to make the most of the experience, we can easily forget the softening aspects. In order for us to open, as Jack was talking about, and heal, we have to be kind with what we see. In order for us to touch the love that's inside, we have to be willing to open up and see the hate and the confusion and the anger and the sadness and the fear. And so to remember particularly those qualities of mind that allow us to see without being horrified or without feeling unworthy. Qualities of patience. A patience that genuinely allows allows us to be ourselves. A quality of forgiveness for just being who we are. On one retreat, and I've mentioned this before, doing some walking meditation and seeing seeing somebody in my mind getting frustrated by how meticulously I was walking. And there's the fleeting thought of, of pride. Wow, I really blew her mind. As I was in my slow walking mode. And from that balanced, settled in place, this whole trap door of competition and, and judgment and pride and all sorts of uh, comparisons came just flooding in and feeling that I'd had that thought millions of times before. Millions of times before. And all I could do was feel tremendous compassion for after a while. It took me a little while to feel it. But after a while, compassion for what I was trying to undo. Those habits of pride of presentation and, and competition that I've had for this whole lifetime and let alone other lifetimes and so some forgiveness for just being who who I am with all my imperfections and seeing that the, the habit of thought so hard to to retrain But it's not impossible because in those moments of awareness you're not hooked by the thought. And so you just see it. Oh, there's that one. And let it go. And then there's the possibility of, of real forgiveness. Oh yeah, I understand that. How 
having a sense of humor about this whole process genuinely develops that compassion and that softness. If you take your mind seriously, you're in trouble. If you can see the humor in it and see that it's not just your situation, your predicament, but that that's the way it works. You don't have to do much else but just see it. That's amazing. And laugh at it. Then you can be in on the joke instead of being the butt of the joke. And keeping a sense of humor, one way to do it that I uh, have found very helpful in my own practice that Thich Nhat Hanh recommends is to practice with a smile on my face. If you've ever sat with Thich Nhat Hanh, you know that's his big, um, big encouragement and instruction. Smile. Even through all the sorrow and the sadness and the fear, see if you can get in touch with that place that can smile through your pain that sees it with just a, a shaft of light that brings some space to the, to the drama. I'll just read a, a quote about smiling from, from him. He says, As you let go and see through your worry and sorrow, bring a smile to your face. This may be just the beginning of a smile, but keep it on your lips like the Buddha's half-smile. Learn to walk as a Buddha walks, to smile as a Buddha smiles. You can do it. Why wait until you become a Buddha? Be a Buddha right now, this very moment. This half-smile is the fruit of awareness, understanding, and and a joyful peace of mind. And it also nurtures and preserves that awareness and peaceful joy. It is truly miraculous. And it not only brings you peace and joy, it also brings peace and joy to people around you. It transforms samsara into the pure land. Don't forget to maintain your half-smile when practicing. When you're really finding yourself getting tight and confused, and there's no space in the mind, try smiling. You might even look in the mirror and give yourself a nice toothy grin, you know. It works. It does. If you lose touch with that space in the mind that can laugh, that can be easy and, and, uh, and light, the practice gets quite oppressive. So practice that way. <clears throat> On one retreat, <clears throat> I looked at the judging mind, saw it again and again and again, and that was the one that really trapped me because I thought I was above the judging mind and I tacked on to the uh, to each judging thought a little phrase from the third Zen patriarch the burdensome practice of judging burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness it's the full the full phrase and each time I noticed a judging thought I'd say the burdensome practice of judging and I'd go to the meal times especially and see Oh, he's going for a third portion, the burdensome practice of judging. (laughs) Oh, she's so mindful. The burdensome practice of judging. Oh, I'm a real klutz. I'd say it 50, 75 times a meal. It was amazing. And after a while, I started to laugh at it. That was the only thing I could do because 
it was there. And as you start to see it again and again and again, you see it's just this button that gets pressed. And if you can have some kind of lightness about it, you know, it's not so uh, unworkable. So, as I say, these first few days being very soft and receptive and gentle while maintaining your commitment to be present. And in that receptive, out of that receptive stance, there can be a settling in and enough space created so that we can start to very carefully and meticulously see the subtleties of reality as the retreat goes on. And through that compassion, the compassionate awareness, through our not running away from what we see, we can develop a confidence, a genuine confidence that we can handle almost any situation because we don't have to be hooked by it, identified with it. It develops, that confidence develops when we're not afraid to see our own stuff. And when you see it enough, oh, it's that stuff. And I'm human. And I'm here on this earth. And so I belong. So to be truly who you are, truly who we are. There's something so beautiful about being natural and ordinary that we touch from time to time when we're in safe company. It's worthwhile cultivating when we're in the practice and here on the retreat as well. Don't try to be the best yogi. Just try to be the best yourself with the sincerity of of effort. That's the only criterion if you want to take a look at how you're doing. How much am I really here? Not how often am I really here, but how willing am I to be with what's going on? Whether or not it looks good or feels good on the inside. And then that naturalness starts to be a powerful transformation because then you are here. There's nothing extra to be. And wherever you are, when you get enlightened, it's going to be right here. And whenever it is, it's going to be now. And so here you have the opportunity in each moment to just be yourself fully. I'm going to close with a, a passage about being ordinary that uh, I really love from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Talking about the qualities of a, of a being, of a Roshi who's evolved and gotten where we sometimes hope we can get to. And addressing this quality of ordinariness. He says, A Roshi is a person who's actualized that perfect freedom, which is the potentiality for all human beings. He exists freely in the fullness of his whole being. The flow of his consciousness is not the fixed repetitive patterns of our usual self-centered consciousness, but rather arises spontaneously and naturally from the actual circumstances of the present. The results of this in terms of the quality of his life are extraordinary. Buoyancy, vigor, straightforwardness, simplicity, 
humility, serenity, joyousness, uncanny perspicacity, and unfathomable compassion. His whole being testifies to what it means to live in the reality of the present. Without anything said or done, just the impact of meeting a personality so developed can be enough to change another's whole way of life. But in the end, it is not the extraordinariness of the teacher which perplexes, intrigues, and deepens the student. It is the teacher's utter ordinariness. Because he is just himself, he is a mirror for his students. When we are with him, we feel our own strengths and shortcomings without any sense of praise or criticism from him. In his presence, we see our original face. And the extraordinariness we see is only our own true nature. When we learn to let our own nature free, the boundaries between master and student disappear in a deep flow of being and joy in the unfolding of Buddha mind. questions or comments and things that come up from today's practice. Anna. Um, what you say touches, touches us all very deeply, but uh, one thing you said kind of threw me off a little bit, mm-hmm. and you said the hindrances are a natural part of ourselves and of our humanity. So how are we going to get rid of our hindrances if it is part of our humanity? Hmm. (coughs) Well, it seems like it's possible to develop into something that's beyond greed, hatred, and delusion. I haven't seen many people who've gotten there but it seems like it, it, that it's possible. It's not so much what we um, that we experience them as what we do with them, so their potency doesn't uh, doesn't last. Yeah. It's like when you see a a child. A child doesn't a child does things that get him into trouble or her into trouble. Uh, and when there's a development over a course of time, there can be um, you know, the polishing of certain aspects and discipline and socialization and social graces and things like that. But inherent in in our being, until we've arrived at that place, there are those qualities that, that need to be worked with skillfully. Okay, excellent.
some confusion about keeping a smile on one's face when one is understood to be natural and honest with oneself. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a good question. When I uh, suggest keeping a smile on, I don't usually mean a, a big toothy grin. That's uh, that's not being natural. When you're feeling the sadness, when you're feeling the the difficulties, what the smile does is just help you, help me, see it with a little bit of space. But that doesn't mean to get rid of it. You're not smiling in order to not get in touch with those things. Um, but you're smiling or you're softening. The smile is the softness. Um, affects the way you're processing what's going on. Or the way you're getting in touch with it. So you have all the all the difficult energies and the confusions and stuff like that. But the way that you can bring a compassionate awareness to it starts to um, starts to transform things. You can't force it. You can't be ahead of the game. You know, so be where you are. But when there's such a tightness in the mind that that there's no space, you're not going to be able to see clearly. And so in particular at those times to bring some, um, some kind of uh, uh, aid to help create that. And I find that smiling does that. I appreciated everything you said about being natural and being ourselves and images. And then the last thing you read, I think, Oh, but that's what I, you know, I get right back into, <laughs> that's what I want to be, <laughs> and I'm not. And so I have, I have trouble with, uh, with those kind of um, readings, because I aspire to that, and then I get into, I'm obviously not a Roshi, and those qualities seem so far removed at this moment. But those qualities come out of the ability to be fully natural and fully yourself, being genuine, being genuine with awareness. And so it's it's not like you've got to do anything special, you know, any kind of secret uh, exercise to do it. It simply means being natural and watching. And in that, the process starts to unfold by itself. That's that's the paradox. If you try to make something happen, it doesn't. Thank you. Is that <laughs> within reach? Yeah. yeah. I think my experience at, at um, the past couple of days, anyway, instead of um, trying to look good or is the experience of trying to avoid the pain of the hindrances. I just the aversion mm-hmm. of the restlessness and the sleepiness and just um, it seems like a really powerful urge to just try to get away. When you're there with it, it's better. 
Just remember that when they keep on coming up. It's, 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 it's just remembering that what you already know from your experience to be true. Nobody has to tell you. Maybe it helps to, to get reminded, but you already know. That's the great part about this retreat, that people already know the, the power of, of mindfulness. So it's just reminding each other, you know, we're sitting here together reminding each other to be mindful by, by going through the retreat like we are. And after a while, you, the reminders get stronger and stronger. So there's um, there's a sitting now before uh, before tea time. I want to take a quick stretch, and then 